everyone, and welcome to Witch Hassle. I am your intrepid host, Cooper Wilhelm, and I am excited to bring you another episode of our beautiful travels through the world of the occult, the mystical, the spiritual, and the strange-until-you-meet-it kind of thing. It's been a bit since the last episode, sorry to say, and this was unavoidable, unfortunately, because I spent some time doing... gosh... 11-hour workdays, 10-hour workdays at my job, and then also trying to take an undergraduate class at the local college to see if I could prepare myself for going to grad school. So it's been a, a busy little time. I'm excited to bring you this interview that I have with Matthew Venus that I recorded two months ago, maybe? Uh, we talk about witchcraft, snakes, effigy magic, hoodoo, and animism and it's just a lovely little chat and i am really glad to bring it to you especially now because matthew venus along with jackie over at cauldron black the uh witchcraft shop up in salem massachusetts together the two of them are putting together at the end of this week the salem summer symposium which is a huge huge cavalcade of magical classes featuring just a galaxy of stars many of whom happen to be Witch Hassle alumni, or just like people I like on a personal level, or think are cool, but wouldn't call a friend because I would feel like I was flattering myself because we haven't really interacted, or maybe we don't know each other at all, and that's fine. But you should definitely check this out because these, these tickets are still on sale. First class is Friday, and we've got two classes from Alexander Cummins, one about the excellent book of the art of magic and also another about the sorceress use of hand gestures kind of a remediation for palmistry if you will uh cadmus is doing two classes one of which is a pagan approach to goetic magic very exciting uh jesse hathaway diaz who showed up on the episode about inspiriting statues we'll be talking about folk healing traditions from mexico as well as the home as a temple uh frank civilli our, our resident astrologer is going to be talking about doing magic in italian rule by saturn doing saturnine remediation sarah lyons from our very first episode is going to be doing magical activism 101 and in addition to people who have been on the show there are also people who have not been on the show who i think are cool or are friends of mine, or are very interesting and are doing interesting classes. For example, Peter von Lakeham is going to be doing Qigong for magical practitioners, so like energy work coming out of your hands, very exciting. Uh, Sasha Ravitch is going to be talking about uh, Romani traditions around the dead and the restless dead and putting the restless dead to rest. Uh, Charles Porterfield, who's sort of a foremost expert in cartomancy and using playing cards in magic and for divination, is going to be talking about going into the graveyard and hoodoo traditions around that. Sam Block is going to be talking about divination and magic with Greek letters. Uh, J.M. Hamedi is going to be talking about an astrological grimoire from the Arabic tradition that has never been translated fully into English. So there's some information, some material you might not be able to get anywhere else unless we all bully him into doing a translation, which sounds like a reasonable and worthwhile thing to do. And uh, for all you Baphomet fans, Matt Oren is going to be talking about Baphomet. Very fun. You know, very exciting stuff. You should definitely check it out. I'm really looking forward to it. And apparently if you can't make the actual class during the live Zoom 
thing that they're doing to make everything safe and remote for everybody you get access to a video of it for the rest of the year so that's pretty that's pretty neat uh and actually speaking of the rest of the year let's do our plague magic minute so here on Witch Hassle, we are doing Plague Magic Minutes every episode until the end of the year, giving you witchy kind of tips and tricks for magical approaches to sickness that might be useful, in addition to, of course, following the evolving health guidelines to bring us some semblance of harm reduction in regards to COVID as much as we can do. For example, today I saw that there's a particular kind of popular mask that uh, is not more effective than just not wearing a mask at all. Though there have been some sort of uh, rather uh, sensationalist headlines saying that it is in fact less effective, though my sense is that the findings don't really bear that out. It's more that it's just not more effective than not wearing a mask, which is not great, you know, still worth to know. Uh, but our Plague Magic Minute today comes from Folklore of Adams County by Harry Middleton Hyatt, which is a collection of folk traditions of the good old USA. It's part of, I think, one could say the the early anthropological study of hoodoo from the 1930s, and here are some suggestions. And it's important to remember that the that COVID-19 is a coronavirus, much like the common cold. So in a way, we could think of it as like a new cold that kills you. So here are some suggestions for what to do about coughs and colds. Uh, a cold may be cured by drinking tea made from mullen leaves slice a large white onion and cover with sugar take this juice for a cold to cure a bad cold cut up an onion and sprinkle the slices with sugar and let them stand until a syrup forms eat these slices of onion just before going to bed pour hot water on sliced onions which have been sugared and take the syrup for a cold sprinkle sugar on onions and bake them in an oven this syrup will cure a cold to cure a cold, poultice the chest with fried onions in a flannel bag. Sort of a mojo bag kind of thing going on there. Rub a roasted onion on the soles of your feet and a cold or cough will disappear. Drink tea made from pennyroyal for a cold. Tea made with peppermint leaves will cure a cold. Take pine needles from a tree, boil in a small quantity of water and add a little sugar. Dust hot popcorn with salt and feed it to a child who has a bad cold. That really doesn't seem like it would be a cure, it just seems like a way of making the child less upset. So here's just a short, there's actually, there are a ton of these. Uh, skunk fat is very good as a cold remedy. Uh, half a cup of syrup, a lump of butter, a little pepper, and a teaspoon of vinegar are good for a cold. Cut a turnip into five slices, cover each slice with a teaspoon of sugar. The syrup will cure a cold. You know, and there's a lot here. Uh, bad cough may be cured if you stroke your throat with the hand of a corpse. Uh, so, you know, a lot of different modalities here that you might explore. But of course, all of this is in addition to doing what our medical and scientific authorities are suggesting is the most up-to-date protocol for you to follow. Uh, so that's from the Blake Magic Minute. Now here's my chat with Matthew Venus. Matthew Venus, of course, is co-sponsoring and is the co-founder with Cauldron Black of the Salem Summer Symposium. And he is also a magician and teacher over at Spiritus Arcanum. And we had a lovely chat about his magical journey, hoodoo, magic, and snakes. So that was fun. Here's Matthew Venus. Matthew Venus, thank you so much for being on. Um, let's let's start with a question about influences. What I, what traditions do you find yourself 
most drawn to and which ones are you sort of working in right now because i know these things can kind of come and go for people a little sure bit. Yeah, yeah yeah absolutely yeah and i mean I, i've been doing this you know for i think a lot of, we're in a generation now where a lot of us have been doing this since we were pretty young <laughs> and a lot of changes can happen during that i would say that like my primary influences in my day-to-day practice and in the way that I tend to approach my work are first and foremost really kind of an animist approach towards things tends to be the way that that I approach most of my magical practices is for kind of from an animist lens and very spirit driven it extends essentially to my artwork and extends to crafting of fetish objects as well as apothecary things making oils and things like that that's actually really a big heart of a lot of my work and where a lot of my focus is but it's informed by a lot of different spiritual traditions so So yes, I'm very much inspired by, in a lot of ways, conceptions of like folkloric or, you know, quote unquote, traditional witchcraft. But that's, it goes so far. I wouldn't say that it's like a heavy, heavy, you know, central focus for me. My practical magic is largely informed by folk magical traditions, largely conjure, root work, and hoodoo. One of my earlier teachers in the craft actually was also a woman who I learned a lot about hoodoo and conjure from, and then that kind of just grew for me. So a lot of the oils that I make, a lot of the work that I do comes from that type of a lens, particularly when it comes to like day-to-day practical approaches to things, because those systems are really built upon people that are just trying to survive, people that are just trying to get by. And so they're they're very effective and very workable in those ways. And then beyond that, I have kind of my own system of spirit work that I've been doing for quite a few years that, that really, if there was like a spiritual heart of what I do beyond just being, uh, you know, connected to plants and materia and making objects, it is it is that practice, which is kind of a personal pursuit and exploration uh, of the spirits as they come to me. Okay, and then really in recent years, you know, a couple of new opportunities in some of the um, ATRs, the African traditional religions have kind of come about or kind of offshoots of that so i've you know been involved a bit in kimbanda and uh, just recently received uh, warriors and alekes in ocha how do you feel about the idea of working in traditions that especially like hoodoo in particular but i think we can say this a lot about about the african spiritual traditions there's a there's a there's a danger i think of appropriation with those sure so how, do you, how do you sort of make sure to sort of thread the needle so that you're you're working these traditions in a way where you're not taking things as opposed to living in them. This is a really large and kind of nuanced issue to really discuss. So I hope that I can do it justice, at least from my perspective. First, let me tell you a little bit. The way that I actually ended up coming into Hoodoo and Conjure was, as I kind of said, one of my earliest teachers in witchcraft, who was an African-American woman in the Detroit area. I mean, I've been practicing magic witchcraft for quite a while and and doing a lot of making of things and, and the way that I approach certain things. And while she was kind of teaching me and while I was talking to her about the type of stuff that I do, she was like, oh, what you're doing is root work. What you're doing is Conjure and Hoodoo. And I was like, what is that? (laughs) I'm trying to get better understanding and perspective. And what it really breaks down to is particularly, I think, really in the current era and also kind of really historically, but in the current era and in particular in the 90s and things like that. There's a lot of books that were published and there's a lot of information out there of what was branded as witchcraft or Wicca or different doing magic that was actually stolen, whitewashed from Hoodoo and Conjure. So most candle magic, as we know it, is actually stolen from Hoodoo and Conjure. Raymond Buckland's book on candle magic is actually kind of a rehashing of the work 
a man named Henry Gamache, which was who wrote the book Master Book of Candle Magic. Sorry, Master Book of Candle Burning. And that book in and of itself is one of the first books that lays out the system of dressing candles, carving candles, using different colored candles for candle magic and having different layouts for that. That was essentially those concepts were owned by Raymond Buckland and rebranded as some kind of offshoot of Wicca, even though I don't think he calls it that, but it's Raymond Buckland writing and publishing it. So a lot of people just absorb that into modern witchcraft, thinking that it's a form of witchcraft, but it actually has its origins in hoodooing conjure. The way that we use a lot of anointing oils and dressing oils in modern magic as well also finds its origins in hoodooing conjure. Most charm bags, quote unquote, or mojos also find their origins in hoodooing conjure. So unfortunately, what I think exists in a lot of modern magic is a lot of rebranding and whitewashing of hoodoo and conjure in general that people don't even bother to acknowledge or aren't aware of whatsoever. So for me, a lot of those things were things were already a part of my practice. So when my teacher essentially pointed out to me, that's what this is. I really became curious in trying to uncover the origins, the sources of these things, and truly have a greater understanding of where they came from so that I could A, call it the right thing, and B, give the ancestry of those traditions and the history of those traditions the honor that they deserve. So that puts me in a position of being a white man doing things that you know I'm very openly calling hoodoo and conjure, which in the current era, I would say even more so than in the past like 20 years, it's really more within the past probably five or 10 years that there's been a lot of discussion around these topics being problematic where I had a lot of interactions with other African-American folks that were practicing hoodoo and conjure and they had no problem with the fact that I was, you know, a non-melanated person practicing it. But I think it's largely because they saw the approach that I was taking towards it, right? Not that it's something that belongs to me. Recognizing that I'm an outsider in this and that I'm I'm essentially a visitor here, so you better be a good guest <laughs> is the best way to kind of put it. So I teach these these topics, but this is one of the things that I think is really important to drive home. I start, every, even if it's not within the context of specifically who to conjure, I start every one of my classes particularly on candle magic and things like that, with a bit of that history for people, because people don't realize it and people don't recognize it. And I think that that's really unfortunate because we're not really giving credit where it belongs. Now, this is a part of my practice. So for me, it only makes sense to call it exactly what it is and to give honor and credit to where it comes from. I could just teach classes on candle magic or, you know, folk magic full stop, but that's not really giving honor to the traditions and the people I learned from. And so there's a part of that there, right? Uh, yeah. Which what's more what's more appropriate to keep doing these practices and not calling them what they are or to actually give them credit for what they are and call them what they are and know the history of what they are. That's, it's kind of a strange place to be in. And I yeah. don't think there's 100% easy answers. I think the best thing is to try to listen to voices of people who have been raised in these traditions and it's their heritage, which is something that I've been doing and trying to do for many years. And it's something that whenever I have students, I really encourage that, you know, sitting down and shutting up when you need to and um, listening when you need to, but also always knowing what the practices that you're doing, where the origins of them are. I think that's an important thing for any magical or spiritual practice. So that's one small leg of that greater issue, right? Um, Is calling things what they are and acknowledging what they are. Because I have had people ask me, well, isn't that appropriation? And then I ask them, I'm like, do you use powders in your magic? Do you use like oils, like black cat oil or van van oil? Do you use a candles and do candle magic in your magic? Do you ever make like kind of charm bag bundles and things like that? And then they'll say yes, inevitably. I'm like, cool. So what you're doing is also appropriation, but you don't even know that it's appropriation and you're not calling it what it is. <laughs> like to me, 
that's more definitive of appropriation. Whitewashing something and calling it something that it's not and erasing it from the heritage it belongs to, then acknowledging it, giving honor to it, giving thanks to those people and giving deference to those people to speak as well. And I think that's something that's important, that if you are a person that's a part of any tradition that's not of your ancestral heritage, that you recognize to what level you are a visitor there and that you should be a good guest there, I think. I think a good guess is a really good metaphor for that. So actually, this is this brings up an interesting idea because you mentioned in that this idea that you you, you know there's a book on candle magic out there that is right. purely just taking hoodoo traditions, and so you you go to a source that actually is grounded more in hoodoo and explicitly in hoodoo as a better way of approaching that, and then talking about the sort of the, the teachers that you've had one on one. So when you're looking at like research into how to pursue a new magical practice, do you rely primarily on flesh and blood teachers? Do you primarily on some sort of written record? Are you going to spirits for that? Like, where are your go-tos? Me personally, and that that really varies depending upon what it is that I'm doing, right? And what type of tradition it is that I'm doing. If it's a living tradition that has, you know, a heritage of folks that have been doing this and are still around, you know, doing this and have done this for many generations, absolutely. First and foremost, I want to go to like those people, right? As much as possible and as much as they're willing to share. And the first approach because you're getting it straight from the from the individuals that are doing this and living in this way and have been raised in a certain way that i think is the most valuable than reading books particularly books that are written by like uh, an outsider themselves right that's kind of viewing in like from an anthropological viewpoint but i mean not that those books aren't helpful as well right they right. certainly can be and so i think there's an element of coupling those things too and that's largely a lot of I feel like that's largely how a lot of my experiences, at least particularly like in, in root work and conjure really have come about is from listening to people that are practicing this themselves and have been practicing it for quite a, a few years. Now, mind you, I mean, this is something that I've been, you know, involved in for well, going on 25, 30 years at this point. But so back in the day, it was really just trying to talk to as many people as I could about what they do. And for some of them, it's not that they have a, a wide ranged, super complex approach towards this it just might be a few little family tradition things you know yeah. as opposed to this like codified way of doing hoodoo and conjure and that's something else that's kind of i feel like more of a modern invention too around root work hoodoo and conjure and for anyone that's looked at the work of um hyatt in all of his interviews with root workers you'll see that there's no like one way that hoodoo and conjure was done there are certain hallmarks along the way that you can kind of recognize but when you look from like one root worker in one town to another in the materials that they're using and how they're using them, they could be vastly different. And I think that that speaks to a couple of things. I think it speaks to being taught in an oral tradition and learning things from different people. And I also think it speaks to particular workers having particular relations with different plants, with different materia and how that material works for them. I think there's something to that in animism as well, like the relationships that we have with natural materials, the relationships that we have with spirits of things, spirits of plants, and how they may work differently for me than they might for you, right? So there is an element there of kind of like knowing the spirits and working with spirits that I think exists there. But having those conversations with the people whose traditions these are and also doing your research beyond that helps give you the foundation of like what is a tradition, right? And when are we stepping outside of that tradition? Even if the spirits are like, oh, you should do this thing, cool. But maybe perhaps we're not in that tradition anymore. Maybe this is something that's its own external activity or behavior, right? So yeah. there's interesting questions around those things and, and things to explore. So I think all of those things play a certain role of validity. It just depends kind of on what I'm doing in my personal spiritual work, which really isn't, it's kind of divorced from hoodoo and conjure and somewhat divorced from like traditional witchcraft. It's my own kind of practice that is largely spirit driven and it's largely informed 
through the work that I've been doing with these spirits. And so that in and of itself, my, my source material is, is a bit different than other existing traditions that I might be engaging with, you know? Yeah. Actually, could you speak a little bit about your, your personal spiritual practice that you're working with right now? Like, who are the Sure, I can, a, a, I can a bit. <laughs> so the best way how to describe this is i use i speak of these spirits and the way that i refer to them is as the as resh okay then that's the word that they've given me for them individually and collectively and so the way that i really came to this it's a bit of of, of a chaos magic-y approach in the beginning but it's really i had been practicing magic for many years and i had exposed myself to a lot of different magical traditions and practices and really hadn't found anything that I felt like really fully clicked for me. I had really kind of built up a great arsenal of spiritual tools, of you know energy work, spirit work, uh, meditative work, visualization type of techniques, as well as you know just a, a lot of other things to approach spirit with and approach magical practice with. But nothing that existed in kind of a prepackaged tradition that I felt like aligned enough with that I wanted to dedicate myself to that specifically. And so. Really, this just came out of work from me kind of working with what we might initially call familiar spirits and then being driven from that to do kind of automatic writing and some scrying work to kind of reveal a magical alphabet, which is sigil, kind of sigillic in its own way. And then through that, uh, it further informed basically almost like a cosmological map of spirits and the way that they function in the world and having different areas of dominion that they oversee. So it basically becomes an entire cosmology. And from that is informed further forms of ritual and spiritual practice and that can can be built upon it. It was something that honestly, when I started it in my like early mid 20s, I didn't really I think it was going to get this deep. <laughs> yeah. But it's just continued to grow layer upon layer to where, you know, okay, so we have an alphabet and for each one of those uh, glyphs on the alphabet, there's a spirit aligned to it. And for each of those, there's uh, further uh, faces or masks of that spirit and different uh, what might be similar to paths and other traditions, um, which is actually some of this is what has really driven me to further explore some of the ATRs and the ways that they've come up because there are definite similarities that I have found. And I'm like, okay, well, now I want to learn a little bit about how that works in that particular tradition. That's one of the things that's been interesting about a personal practice, like is there are elements of it that have developed over the years that I would later find a parallel to in other spiritual traditions and uh, as opposed to initially that almost felt kind of discouraging it's like oh wow is this some kind of weird you know is it derivative of this other thing but I wasn't really aware of those other things so it's almost more of like a way mark and it's almost more encouraging because it's like yeah this is how we do spirit this is how we do magic and so it's reassuring to be like oh okay so something like this exists in another tradition because this is how they approach spirit in in their terms terms it's part of the tech if you will for how yeah. we as as a culture and as human beings you know approach spirit so so there's that and then it has built into its own kind of whole system of talismanic magic and kind of more ritualistic aspects but it's really got a deep heart really of kind of more of an, an animist approach towards things so hopefully that makes sense oh yeah totally given i mean it sounds like you're still sort of developing this and putting it together Absolutely. it's going to get to a point where you're going to want to bring other people into this well <laughs> That's that's an interesting question. And for a long time, it was one of those situations where I just was feeling like, no, this is like my work. It's going to be, you know, when, when people talk about like what their work is, what their magical work is in this world, like this is it for me. That's the heart of it for me, really. And for a long time, I felt like it was just kind of a private practice or, or you know, private 
pursuit. The most that I had really been out there with it in any capacity is that if you are familiar with any of my artwork and things like that, there this script and some of the talismanic stuff will show up in some of my artwork that I put out there. And so that's about as public as I've done with it. And I'd actually been doing this practice for quite a while before I ever even decided to put anything related to it out there for the public to view or see. And it was largely at the behest of the spirits that they're like, no, we want to put stuff out there. I'm like, okay. So I didn't really think that involving other people. However, there are people that are very close to me and who I trust that I may be pursuing this with as a practice more in the future. I'm actually talking with a very good friend of mine about bringing them into this and um, figuring out what that looks like, right? Because there's a whole different element of exploring something for yourself versus bringing someone in and trying to teach them this thing. And also figuring out what needs to be done in the way of what we would call like initiations or ritual behaviors to draw someone into what this is, to the stream of it and to the current of it. But I am kind of interested and excited about that prospect because seeing it through the eyes of someone else who is experiencing it and working with it and working with these spirits I think will be largely informative to the whole of it right and add much more color and perspective so 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 we'll see is really kind of the answer with that it was never my intention to make it into something that be passed down but more and more as it does tend to grow and more and more as they're kind of making their <laughs> intentions known the spirits that is and other people are approaching me about it i think it's going to kind of force my hand to to do more with it which is probably good <laughs> because that also forces me to have to actually sit down and write things out and codify them a little bit more for yeah. some people as opposed to just having it all largely in my own head which i still think there is power to oral transmission of things and, and passing information along that way and not having everything written down in some source book for people but yeah so yeah it's an interesting question and one that actually has been coming up for me more lately that i'm i'm trying to kind of juggle with a little bit that actually brings to mind because i mean like you so you've been doing magic for going on three decades now but yeah i mean Surely the teaching has been for a shorter span of time. What was that transition like going from from a person who just did stuff to a person who sort of had to stand in front of other people and say, okay, let me give you an account of this? Sure. That came about really... So my first teaching experience, I was probably 23 or 24, maybe around when that happened. And it came on the heels of... So I had been in solitary for a very long time, actually, and it wasn't until like my early 20s that I uh, met that one of the earlier teachers I was just talking about, um, and she taught really wonderful kind of intro to Wicca slash witchcraft type of class. I would call it intro to witchcraft nowadays. It's more appropriate. But on the heels of what she was doing, I decided to do a little class that I uh, affect, you know, affectionately and adorably called witchcrafting. Um, and it was largely about um, crafting things, the making of things, using our hands to make magical objects, tools, items, apothecary. So in that class, that was the first class that I ever really taught on a larger scale. I may have done one or two small transition things where people asked me if I wanted to present it something. And um, and I did like maybe a small class on like how to make, you know, ointments or salves or something like that. But that was the first like ongoing class that I taught. And it was, it was fine for me doing that because it's just... It, a large part of it is teaching what you know, right? Teaching what you have the experience. And I, I always love the opportunity to teach things because you never really know what you know until you have to explain it to another person and teach it to another person. And new kind of pathways I always feel like open up in the way that we view things when we get those interesting questions from students that we might not have asked ourselves or anticipated. So I think that's really wonderful. But it really just started with me teaching classes on it. It was actually more of like a hands-on, okay, so this week we're going to make like a scrying mirror. This week we're going to make incense. This week we're going to make candles. This week we're going to make oils. 
And that was the first class that I did, which was great because I was already doing all of that stuff, right? And so it was just sharing with other people how to do that. And then I want to say a year or two after the fact, my teacher who'd been teaching some of those intro classes kind of stepped back and retired from doing that. And so then I, with her blessing, actually took that over and started teaching some classes there. This is the area still. And so really that's, that think how it really grew. And then it just turned into, you know, presenting at different conferences and, and building from there. Then, you know, I've had some years where I've not taught as much and some years where I've taught a lot more. Now, this is largely my full-time gig is, you know, being a professional magician and, and teacher. So I do a lot of classes, I do vending events, and I, um, you know, have a website. And so that's, that's become the heart of what I do. Whereas like before I was working in retail management for many years, and it was like my side thing, you know, are you doing so like, we are in the midst of a pandemic here. Uh, have you? Oh, are we? I hadn't heard. Yeah. Um, what, like, are you switching to like online classes? How are you sort of handling with this well so it is an interesting thing and and i I, yes i am um well the good thing about this really for me uh, and and there's nothing good about a pandemic but the good thing from where i stand is that i feel like i was somewhat it was almost like in the back of my mind i was already kind of preparing for something like this in the sense that just in the past month or so i've really been doing a lot of online classes and that's nice for me because I get to do it from the comfort of my own home. <laughs> it was a little strange at first to do online classes, though, because it's weird to sit in a room by yourself and just essentially talk, you know, to a screen. Because I'm just so used to really loving, like, having that energy that I can exchange with the people that are in my classes uh, in person. But the best thing about it is I'm able to reach people all over the world. Like, I've had students, you know, from Russia. I've had students from India. Which is super great. So this is something that I've been kind of doing a little bit more in the past, like mm, probably two months. I, I've maybe did one or two online things just offhand before that, but really getting into it, I've been doing in the, the past like two months or so, and it's it's been going fairly well so far. And so I feel pretty well prepared to be able to provide that for people. And I think it's wonderful because I think it does give us some kind of a social interaction outlet when we're kind of sequestered to our homes. And I know that for me, it allows me to still do what I love doing and, and still have some interaction with people. And then also, you know, that does help put food on my table <laughs> as well. Right. So so that is helpful. But I mean, I just think a lot of people are going to be stuck at home and bored. And if you want to be able to engage with some interesting material, hopefully learn some new things, there's a lot of opportunities for that. So I feel like I was somewhat well prepared for this. Like I already have a Foundations of Folk magic class that's coming up starting on the 20th of March. And then I have Foundations of Witchcraft coming up the 26th of April, which are both ongoing courses. And those were already set up to be happening before any of this pandemic stuff. So I feel kind of very thankful that I guess I just was kind of pushed in the direction to prepare that stuff. Yeah. But without even knowing that this was coming. And it largely just came from, you know, a lot of times when I would be posting classes online that I was going to be doing like at shops, a lot of people would be like, this sounds awesome. I wish I could be there, but I live so far away. Or people being like, have you thought about doing things online? So I finally started working in that direction. And it's really been wonderful being able to connect with people all over and and getting some of this, this response and um, meeting new people through that. So yeah, so I think a lot of people are going to start moving that direction if they haven't already. It's just kind of a good thing to, have in your back pocket anyway but now particularly in, in the sense that like probably for the next couple months or so it's going to be highly you know suggested that people avoid being in large public spaces for a while i think that online classes are definitely a great thing that we can all invest our time and energy into and it allows people that are interested in magical practice to help support people who are doing this for a living as well you know and then they also are able to get something to do while they're stuck at home 
and build on their own practice. So it's a great time for that, at least. And hopefully this will get a lot of people exposed to a lot of, of other people that they might not otherwise know of. Yeah, I mean, that sounds like a great, you're going to have, I'm sure, incredibly attentive students while everyone is trapped in their homes. If uh, if people want to check those out, they would go to your website or? Yeah, my website, it's um, spiritusarcanum.com. And you can either just search for classes or if you go up, like there's a top bar thing that has a drop down that says like classes and workshops. They're usually listed there. I also on my Instagram, a lot of times we'll do announcements of like upcoming classes and things like that. But all of those upcoming, upcoming classes are available through the website right now. Okay. Actually, so you're speaking of, of Instagram, yeah. you're a huge occult artist of, of, of renown. And I, I was wondering, um, this might be a ridiculous question to ask. So please push back against the, the framing premise of this question. <laughs> okay. But do you find that the art is informed by the magic or the art is a form of the magic or that there's really no barrier since this is again a, a practice that you're doing with your hands to kind of externalize something into the world yes <laughs> is, yeah that would be my answer to all of that is yes to all of it the art is a form of magic uh, the art is magic and the process of the art is also magical and self-transformative in a lot of ways there are some times when you know you're just making something for fun which for me doesn't really happen so much anymore because i feel like almost everything is somehow imbued with spirit especially because that's where my like awareness and consciousness is now with it but when we create things as human beings particularly i feel like when we craft things with our hands i feel like we are being most like a to the way that we envision the gods, right? In that we have the ability to, to manifest something into the world that didn't exist in the way that it did before. Most of the creator gods are seen as sculptors or, or makers of some sort, crafters in some way. And so for me, the crafting of objects is something that's inherently magical, inherently spiritual, and just the nature of it, taking something that's a conception, something that's an idea, something that you want to see manifest in the world, and then through the work of your hands and, and all of that actually manifesting that thing into a physical existing final product or piece that is magic i don't see it really much as anything other than that uh, particularly when our mindset is aligned towards that as the process and the purpose and the goal so yes absolutely my crafting of things my art is is inseparable from what I consider to be my magical practice as well. And do you find when you have some sort of specific result that you're trying to generate, let's say uh, bringing more business to a business that you work at or are in some way uh, have as a client, like do you, does the idea of making a piece of art sort of present itself as one of the potential routes of, of affecting that or is there some way in which the art is still siloed into a purely sort of personal area no both can function so i mean there are plenty of like you know fetish objects and spirit houses and and uh talismanic objects and things like that that i make for myself but this is also something that it's a part of my work so if i have someone that has a business that they are looking for something to help bring prosperity or stability or attention to their business that is absolutely something that i can craft as some sort of like a fetish object or spirit object which i mean would be a form of art that then could be kept in that space to be essentially a reservoir for and a battery for as well as kind of something that irradiates the appropriate type of power that it would be needed and so this approach you know extends beyond just myself i do talismanic art for people as well that can be even like hung on a wall or carried on their person so yeah it's really a uh, one of the main ways i tend to approach a lot of the work that i do so when you're when you're inspiriting an object do you mm -hmm. feel that you are does it feel more like by making the object, you are sort of creating a spirit to go with it? Is it something where you're calling down 
any spirit that would sort of naturally come to roost in that object? Are you going sort of in the grimoire route where you would talk to some spirit that controls, you know, 57 legions of this and that? Like, send one of those down, if you will. Or like, where, where is this inspiriting sort of happening? Who, who are you talking to in that moment? So again, my answer would be yes. <laughs> um, in the cool. sense of all of those approaches have been approaches that I've, I've worked in the sense where sometimes the elements that we use to create a fetish object or a piece of art or whatever we want to call it informs the nature of that, right? Particularly if we're talking about natural materials. I mean, this ties into some of the animism things too. Objects that were used in a certain way historically have that signature and that history. And and so they have a bit of that spirit of that. For instance, like uh, a horseshoe nail that's never been used and a horseshoe nail that was taken from a horse that had just run a race are going to have totally different signatures and histories. So the, the energy that those are bringing to, the spirit that they're bringing to the larger whole is going to be different. So there is a certain level of this almost chimeric approach towards I take all of these these objects with these uh, natural virtues or signatures, bring them together into a fetish object. And just by the nature of the body, an appropriate spirit may inhabit that. Uh, there's, it's not just like a wide open call. So there's a little bit of kind of divination that's done with that, as well as the actual official drawing in to solidify something that's tied to that. But making the home, if you will, resonant with the type of, of spirit that you're drawing into it is part of the process, because it's also going to make it more uncomfortable for spirits that aren't appropriate to the working, if that makes sense. Because the more you align it to be an appropriate home for the right kind of spirit, the less it's going to be an appropriate home for the wrong kind of spirit. So there's an element of that to it um there is also i mean the conception of you know just created and generated spirits that didn't exist prior which absolutely i have done for certain workings where um you're you're essentially creating a spirit actually the crafting and, and use of what we know as a mojo bag is actually very similar to that where you're taking disparate elements putting them together and making a spirit house and the different elements that you've put together inform the nature of what that that is intended to do so you can find this in a lot of the making of different fetish objects where it could be that you know it's a it's a generated spirit or that it's you're making a house that's appropriate for an existing spirit that is then perhaps conjured into it so both of those approaches are, are very workable it just kind of depends on what it is that you're trying to do and also the level of responsibility that you want to take care of this thing right um, if you're making a spirit house for an existing spirit depending upon its level of power and what it's going to require of you there's going to be a lot more upkeep and responsibility to care for that versus if you have a generated spirit that is made a specific job and then kind of essentially programmed to dissipate or be removed or destroyed after that work is done these are all valid ways of doing things, I feel, but just appropriate to different situations. And actually, you bring up divination, and I wanted to talk to you about something during this interview. And so, hey, we're in this interview right now, so why not I do that? Hey. <laughs> um, where, I mean, it seems like you have a number of modalities for divination that you, you tend to, and I'd love to talk to you about that array, but you're one of the few practicing bone throwers that I have come across in trying to dig into this. So I want to talk mm. to you about throwing bones. Like when you sure. throw when you throw bones as a form of divination, it's not just bones, right? No. And I mean there are there are plenty of bone throwers out there. I don't know. I mean we're just definitely not as like 
is out there as like tarot readers or, or even like Lenormand or whatnot. But no, when you're throwing bones, largely, I mean, there are some folks that when they throw bones, it's all bones. And sometimes it's like all the bones of one specific animal, perhaps like a possum or raccoon or something like that. There are a lot of different ways that bone throwing is done. And I think that's actually one of the reasons why I like it. But yeah, my, my bone throwing kit does have bones in it, but it also has different roots. It has different stones, shells, other types of like there's like, you know, little dowel parts in there <laughs> and, and various things that are all intended to kind of bring their own spirit in to speak through the process and and this is why in most cases two different bone throwers are going to have totally different bone throwing sets they might have some similar pieces that are shared between the two of them but even in that case the meaning of those pieces for those readers may not always be in alignment because it's not a thoroughly codified thing it's largely how the spirits of those things are speaking to the reader and that's also largely informed through calling upon ancestors and doing ancestral work too so whenever i'm doing bone throwing it's largely like my ancestors that are coming through as well as the ancestors of the person i'm reading for and then the bones themselves kind of speak in the way that they fall to each other and that's another thing that, that makes it interesting I, I mean i think this is true for a lot of forms of divination is that i could throw the bones and they could the throw could look exactly the same as they would you know for you or for another person but what that reading has to say could be totally different because what I'm essentially receiving, the messages that I'm re receiving in, as far as what jumps out and what needs to be read are going to be very different for you based upon your situation or another person based upon theirs, even if the throw looks exactly the same. Oh, so if somebody wanted to, you know, get going on bone throwing, like they're not looking for, a, they're not going to find like a, a good book that says, you know, if it faces east, it means this and so on. Like there's, it's a different process for getting getting started there is a different process but i'm actually i'm looking at a book right now that is one that i always recommend to people to pick up and check out it's a book called bones shells and curios by michelle jackson that is a small little book that packs in a whole lot of information about different ways that you can read bones she gives you a lot of different listings as to different types of pieces that you could get different ways that you could read it my style of reading isn't exactly the same as hers but there's a lot of really excellent information in that little book and it's like i think it's really affordable too. Uh, so for people that are looking to get interested, I highly recommend that book is a good place to get an idea of how this might be done. And then really the next step is just like start putting together a set, you know, and figure out what's going to be in that. And that's one of the things that's interesting about a bone throwing set is that th over time, things will break, things might get lost, you might feel that something's not speaking anymore. So you remove it from the set or something else jumps out in your life or makes itself aware, uh, make to your, makes itself um, present for you that it wants to be in the kit and then you add that in so it's something that's always changing too so it's growing and evolving and, and um, having pieces added or removed and that's part of the beautiful thing for me about it is it is largely like a living kind of collective of little spirits that come through together to bring messages and, and for me it's very palpable the way that i can read with that versus a lot of other forms of divination that's really beautiful you also mentioned that there's a role that that ancestor work plays in this is that primarily just having a good working relationship with ancestors or is there something you do during the divination process to make sure that they're actually actively participating in that both so i think that you know you could say whatever you want during the divination part of it but if you don't actually have an ancestral practice like they're probably going to be a lot less likely to show up for you so yeah part of it is having some form of active ancestral practice of which i have a couple of different things that i kind of do as ancestral workings and practices and then i do a call to the ancestors that happens at the beginning of each reading where i call upon both my ancestors and the ancestors of the person i'm reading for whether they're with me in the room or not because sometimes i do distance readings where i'm just you know doing the reading and taking a recording of it and then send it off to the person which is an interesting way of doing readings <laughs> so both 
really calling them in to make their voices present and help bring through clear messages. But I feel like in order to have them there, it helps to have an ongoing, just regular day-to-day life type of an ancestral practice. Yeah, I feel like ancestral practice is a thing that is slowly becoming more mainstream though yeah because like i feel like it's a thing that people are talking about in a new way but it sounds like everybody's been doing it forever so for the for the kids at home who aren't super up to date on this or aren't familiar with the practice because it is only now becoming kind of like a, a widely discussed topic what are like some standard ancestral practices that you you get involved in on a daily basis so really some some basic approaches i think for people and i think that it is really wonderful that more and more people are exploring this because i think it's a major part that has been lacking from you know western occultism and magical practices for a very long time and it's something that really human beings have been doing for a very long time and it seems that we really lost touch with that so it's great that it's coming back more but really on a daily basis for me it's giving offerings to the ancestors so sometimes it's a bit of food that i have made um and giving some of that to the ancestors i also give my ancestors water i give my ancestors candlelight i give my ancestors prayer which is an important part of it praying to your ancestors giving them thanks for the gifts that they have given you and the blessings that they've given you and watching over you and asking that they continue to do that also giving them thanks for the fact that you're here literally if it weren't for all these people that came before us we wouldn't be here so giving prayer to our ancestors light giving water giving offerings whether they're of food or flowers or you know coffee or chocolate or tobacco all of those things are somewhat regular things that happen around my house those are some of the main just what day-to-day practice looks like and then beyond that there are just some things of like i mean having a space for your ancestors too obviously it goes before any of that which would be having something that you dedicate as space where your ancestors are served and acknowledged. So some form of an altar or a part of your house or some type of a vessel, just depending upon what your practice is and what your approach is and what feels right, but establishing a place for them in your home and in your life and then making a place for them in your home and in your life. And I feel like there are things that we can do also to kind of honor our ancestors. And, and one of those things that I've really enjoyed doing in the past couple of years has been doing like family tree research type of stuff and really kind of getting the names of the people that, you know, were in your line and and knowing the names of who these people were and kind of remembering them you know that whole like what is remembered lives type of a thing and if you have a litany of names that you're able to have access to that's a great thing to also be able to read off uh, when you're doing prayer or serving the ancestors so that might like look different for different people and not everyone has access to that type of thing that is okay i just want people to know that even if you're like if you're adopted or you don't know who your ancestors are you can still call upon your ancestors even if you don't know all of their names they are with you they're in your blood you know they're they're your birthright so I, I love the fact that people are, are more exploring this. And it comes up a lot in my readings, too. It often comes up in a lot of my bone readings, too, because I'm specifically calling upon the ancestors. So a lot of times people get a message where I'm like, yeah, your ancestors want you to work with them more. <laughs> so um, not surprisingly that they would say that. Yeah. Actually, this brings up an interesting question, because, like, you know, you're you're in Massachusetts, which yeah. I don't know what real estate is like up there. But coming from New York, where there is um, a huge premium on space here and so like it's hard to have sort of like a dedicated space that isn't also part of you know some other room that you use all the time where do you tend to favor putting altars like are we talking the kitchen we talking the bedroom because i mean there it's an interesting question of like where can you put these things that are deeply spiritual without them being sort of you know interfered with while you're making um I don't know what people cook. I've just drawn a complete blank on foods. Uh, (laughs) 
that has ragu in it there there's a food. yeah i actually feel like i mean it kind of depends on you know what who, who the altar is dedicated for i mean if we're talking about ancestors i actually think the kitchen is a beautiful place to keep your ancestors because one of the things that brings people together more than anything is food when you go to large family gatherings like how often is it that a lot of people are hanging out around the kitchen right it's a good central place to have an ancestral altar near where a lot of people are going to be where living is going to happen where where people will be gathering is because you're inviting them to be a part of that part of your life so having uh, even it doesn't have to be a giant space a, a grand altar i mean it can be as large or small as you you have the ability to do and what you're comfortable with but having a dedicated you know space where you're going to serve them and perhaps have you know pictures and things like that is a really wonderful thing and i think the kitchen's a beautiful place for that either that or like if you have a hearth or somewhere that's more central to the home that's always a great place too don't recommend it in the bedroom unless you want you know your great aunt to see you bringing that person home <laughs> but if that's the only space you have then maybe some type of a cover or whatever for that altar when it's not being served you know you, you make do with what you have and i think that's kind of true for any manner of spirit really you know i, I think the nature of the spirit should somewhat you know, dictate where it's most appropriate to live. You know, if I have a spirit that's more volatile, I'm certainly not going to invite that or a spirit that's more volatile or one that's maybe more reclusive, I'm not going to invite that to be like in the center of the home. You know, uh, it's probably going to be more secreted away from somewhere where it has its privacy and isn't getting disturbed too, too easily. And that could even be the back of a closet if you don't have a lot of room. You know, I think we all have to make do with, and I've lived in a lot of different spaces. I actually am I'm really happy to have a place with a lot of space for the first time in a long time right now. But I've lived in tiny spaces and just had to make do with, you know, what, what you have. But yeah, I, I hope that kind of helps answer that. Yeah, I think it's a problem I think a lot of people need to solve for themselves. But it's always good to get a sense of how people who are old hands at this sort of thing are handling it. And I think like there's also something to be said of like, even if you just have like a small trunk or something or like or like a chest or whatever, that you, if you don't have a lot of room, you can keep all of your stuff in there and then just have temporary setups, you know, pull out the items that you need to do the working that you need to do and call upon what you need to do. This is why sometimes having a small fetish object or spirit doll or something like that for an entity can be great because that's something that you can it's somewhat compact but has a lot to it and it can be made so essentially that's active when you're working it you know what i mean and then it can be wrapped up and placed somewhere securely when you're not working it yeah i mean i've got a i've got a box of tarot cards that i basically dedicated to not doing any divination with but just sort of having as like pop-up um mm -hmm representations yeah. of, different, of different spirits like I've, I've recently come across the idea that i feel like saint roche who's a big plague saint so you know good person yeah. is, you know is basically the full card just because the dog i think is what seals the deal on that one uh -huh. um, yeah no that's brilliant yeah and and that's that's right that's being innovative at its best it's wonderful if we can have all of these tools and trappings but is it entirely necessary absolutely not some of my most effective works i've done with like a ballpoint pen and some lined paper and a bit of my spit you know what i mean so uh you don't always need all the trappings so so um actually uh speaking of trappings though graveyard work how much of that do you do um well uh i mean it varies really <laughs> kind of on what i'm trying to do it's something that a lot of working with spirits of the dead is a, a pretty large part of my practice. But so I would say I do a fair amount of work in or around the graveyard. And it's largely the gathering of different dirts more than anything else for different purposes, whether those are gathered from specific graves to work with specific spirits, or if they're gathered from maybe like the gates of the cemetery or the crossroads of the cemetery or the borders of the cemetery. There's a lot of call for that and a lot of different things that I'm kind of involved in. So I feel like I'm more often than not doing that type of stuff at the cemetery or perhaps leaving items at the cemetery too. 
entering graveyard work on that level. But I would say that it's mostly, yeah, that that earthy dirt related type of work where I'm getting different materials there that then are brought home and fashioned into other things because I'm trying to draw the aid or some of the nature of a particular spirit to be present in in another object or, or a formula. So, so there's a whole, you know, there's a whole practice kind of around like do's and don'ts and, and best practices for when we're in the cemetery, particularly doing work, you know, of cleansing ourselves when we leave and leaving offerings when we arrive and giving thanks to the guardians of the cemetery and such. So there is, there's, there's a whole thing around that, that, that I've enjoyed quite a bit. And I just, it's one of those areas, it's interesting because in different divinations and different systems, it seems like a lot of the spirits that come up for me are usually associated with graveyards and cemeteries, unsurprisingly, because it's one of those areas that I've always really actually felt quite peaceful and really enjoyed being in. I was pretty young. But, you know, I was one of those weird goth kids, so. I think a lot of people listening to this are probably were or still are one of those weird goth kids. Exactly. Um, They're the best types. (laughs) The Cure has never not been a good band. Agreed. What would be like a a good use for, say, Crossroads Dirt specifically from a graveyard? Is that just for getting in touch with spirits? Or is there still that kind of lingering notion of commerce that we sometimes find with Crossroads Dirt? Yes, commerce, but in the the city of the dead, right? So commerce in the sense of that could be good for working with with pacts. It could actually be helpful in some cases with ancestral work. At Crossroads, where spirits are coming and going and there's that traffic, right? That movement of spirit too. So it could also be used for works where we're trying to get some movement from the dead or where we're trying to have some access to different realms of or spirits of the dead it's it's good for that type of thing cemetery gates dirt is also really good for like if you're trying to bring some of your ancestors into your home if you gather it correctly with the proper prayer and proper protections you could have a bit of like let's pretend that none of your ancestors are buried near you if you get dirt from cemetery gates that's one thing that you could keep in a small vessel like near your ancestor altar with the express purpose of being able to create like a gateway for your dead for your ancestors that watch over and guide and guard you to be able to feel welcome and enter into that space and enter into your life but this is the type of thing that should be done you know with absolutely spoken intention and prayer at the time of gathering so that when you're gathering it you're also programming it for how it's going to function because we don't want to just open a gateway just to any old spirits of the dead right so a lot sorry keep going (laughs) what did you say i'm sorry Oh, that does sound like poltergeist, where it's like, oh, they moved the graves, but they never moved the bodies. Oh, my God. Exactly. And so I always I always recommend to people that are not that are new to this type of work that you have at least some semblance of some type of a spiritual protection that you're bringing along with you when you're going to do this type of work so that you're keeping off, you know, those kind of hungry dead from latching on and kind of getting the way of the intentions of the work that you're trying to do. So for some folks, this might take, you know, the look, uh, depending upon tradition, maybe it's, you know, you call upon St. Michael or, or, or some other type of spiritual protector to keep you safe while you're doing this work so that only those spirits that you're trying to work with are the ones that are coming through. And then, you know, doing some form of cleansing when you leave the cemetery as well is always wise. I do have a whole class on this. <laughs> so um, oh, cool. so if folks are interested in it, it's called Keys to Necropolis. And um, I talk a lot about cemetery work. So if people are interested, feel free to reach out to me on it because I get in a lot more detail with it. So, but yeah, I think that there's there's definitely that crossroads energy, but crossroads of the cemetery, right? Where paths are made and where, you know, where spirits travel, right? So the paths of travel and where spirits come together to meet, but also packs and agreements are made. So that's part of that crossroads dirt thing. Whereas for me, the cemetery gates is more of like the entrance to the realms of the dead, right? And um, that that class, Keys to the Necropolis, is that one that's going to be available online? 
It is. Uh, I'll do it again probably soon. I had. I did it about a month ago, so it'll probably be at least another two months before I do another round of it. If people are really interested in it, though, the video is available. So if they reach out to me, I'm more than happy to set that up. So if they wanted to purchase it and just see the video of it, they're welcome to that as well. Trying to figure out the best way of doing it going forward so that I might just have videos of classes available for people to purchase whenever they want to. At the moment, I'm kind of liking doing it in the way where it's like I'll do a class live and then the video of it is available to the people that registered for it for like two weeks after that. So it gives people the opportunity to join the live stream if they want to but if they can't make it they still have access to the video for a while after that but um, i'm just not in the place yet where i'm having the videos like indefinitely available just yet yeah i mean yeah. that's totally fair so one of the things actually okay so there, there are two more things i definitely want to get to before we before we call it quits on this but i know we are coming up on an hour so i don't want to keep you so if you need to leave at any point by bowing, oh yeah just... no worries <laughs> um so snakes <laughs> Yes. Yes, snakes. I love snakes. I've loved snakes ever since I was a kid. I used to, when I was a kid, spend a lot of my time outdoors and in nature. And one of the things I used to love to do was uh, catch snakes and kind of charm them, if you will. I would catch these like scary snakes and within a day or so they're like pretty docile and just letting me like, you know, pat and carry them around. So yeah, I've loved snakes ever since I was a kid. And really for me, there's this really wonderful, magical spirit to snakes so um i assume you're asking that because i have pet snakes yeah i mean that was what i was sort of that was going to be my jumping off point but i really want to hear about your personal relationship with snakes and also like your magical relationship with snakes like right i, I mean it's familiars or how do you um somewhat somewhat yes i mean i feel like there's an interesting way that I tend to view familiars. And there's a couple different ways that I think that one could view familiars. Yes, I could, in, in a loose term, call them familiars. I tend to view familiars more as spirits, so spirit, like familiar spirits more so than like a, an actual living animal. However, there's this interesting nexus where a familiar spirit can take up residency in a living animal and they can share that vessel. That is a technology you don't see talked about very much openly or in witchcraft. And to me, that is something... So essentially, it's part of the conception around the same way that a human being could be merged with the spirit or married to a spirit where that spirit in part lives within them or that spirit is seated in them or that spirit quote-unquote possesses them the same thing can happen with familiar spirits and animals that are pets and so that can sometimes the, the serpents that i have the pets that i have sometimes can become a bit of a vessel for a little bit for some of the spirits that i work with but they don't live there permanently I guess if that makes sense. So they're pets. They're also kind of familiars. And uh, snakes just have like an innate uh, natural like virtue and power to them that I've really always enjoyed. And it's hard for me to like fully explain beyond the conception of like obviously snakes have that like renewal rebirth energy, which is really beautiful with them shedding their skins. I also think that like they know how to essentially get into what seems to be almost like a trance type of, of a of a form because snakes can just sit very 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 still for like hours sometimes days and just wait for a meal they're i think incredibly simple but also wonderfully complex creatures and i just i love like watching them and and also just the way that they feel i love holding them you know and, and kind of feeling that they're just muscle essentially and there's a yeah. power to them as well so it's not surprising that you know the serpent and snakes have been found so much throughout a lot of different mythologies in that the shedding of the skin is kind of a magical act in and of itself but also so many snakes are so dangerous to human beings as well not all of them obviously actually most snakes aren't very dangerous to human beings at all and it's sad that so many people are are 
freaked out by them and against them. But yes, obviously we have the venomous serpents out there, none of which I have as pets. I, the pets I have are like, I have like a ball python, which ball pythons are basically like the Labrador retrievers of snakes. They're, they're like the cutest, most docile, like adorable creatures on the on the planet. So I don't know, there's a, there's a lot to be said on snakes and the symbolism of snakes and also just the way that they move and, and how we might associate those to different elemental things, but also currents of spirit and energy and how that functions. And that's, I think, one of the things that I really love about snakes in general is just the the multitude of mythologies built around them. And, and in almost any, basically every culture that has serpents in it has mythologies built around the snake, whether it's for, for good or ill, and sometimes for both, right? As we see like in some of the like Egyptian mythology. So um, yeah, I don't know. Snakes are great. <laughs> you were You were taming them and catching them as a kid, like, is this sort of how, like, because we haven't actually talked about how you first got into all of this. Did it just yeah. sort of grow organically? Were you just doing things that you would later look back on and be like, oh, that was witchy as hell? Yeah. Or was there like a very conscious effort to like become the witch as a child? So both really in the sense that like I have always really been like very connected with nature that's like when i've felt my most at peace and and happiest i think all of my ha- like my happiest memories as a child were just running off into the woods for hours and exploring the creatures and the rocks and the trees and the plants and all of those things and really felt my most connected to things and my most at peace uh, ever since i was young doing that and then also as a kid you know i always was obsessed with like magical creatures and the figure of the witch and the wizard and mythologies and all of these things much more so than like the overculture's conception of Christianity, right? And so I think I was already doing things that were pretty magical. And it's interesting too, because as a kid, I also played with dolls a lot. <laughs> so fast forward to the future, and here I am making, you know, doing classes on working with effigies and making dolls and fetish objects and things like that. I feel like a lot of my childhood, I was doing things that I'm doing as adult now, just even more consciously as a form of magical and spiritual practice. But so there's an element of that. And then when I was probably like 11 or 12, I found uh, my first book on witchcraft that was like a history of witchcraft. When we're talking about, you know, uh, more of the the which is Sabbath and the Devil's Supper and all of those wonderful things. But I was really shocked and amazed to realize that witches were real and that there was actually historical precedence for witches and witchcraft and that uh, these weren't just imaginary things from fantasy tales, but like witchcraft and witches were real things that existed in history. And then from there, it grew into a more conscious effort to find out more. And I started finding more and more books about, you know, modern witchcraft, you know, and the 90s so the books that i had available to me that were largely influential were things like cunningham which um you know i'm a far ways from now but i did do owe great debt to um at that time there weren't that many books out there that were accessible to a kid that age you know and so and also that's what really got me into doing a lot of herbalism and and a lot of those things so i definitely owe a certain amount of gratitude to that and then from there it really was it was just uh i think i already was kind of drawn towards all of these things so it wasn't a taking on of anything new it was just uh, claiming it with more context and with more of an ability to engage with it once I really found early evidence of like okay well like so magic is a thing that people do and have done for a lot longer than what we're actually currently doing and witchcraft has been around for a very long time as well so that's what I'm into you know um, and it just always felt to be uh, a part of, of who I was and what I was doing anyway and so just kind of built upon that so actually let's talk a little bit about effigy magic since you brought it up um yeah. also I, I this is one of the things that i first reached out to you about all those weeks ago oh um, yeah yeah and like i think 
think a lot of people are familiar with FG magic in the form of, you know, I think the voodoo doll is the phrase that, you know, comes up. So like the idea of doing harm with those, but you know, my understanding is that the, that the, the, the tradition of these things goes back as far as, you know, ancient Greece, ancient Egypt, probably farther. Yeah. Um, and like, what other uses are there for effigies? Is it just attack magic or what else is out there? First, we have to kind of look at what our conception of like what an effigy is, right? So if we're talking about something that's kind of a humanoid form that is smaller in scale than an actual human or even sometimes full size. It's really just something that's meant to mimic the appearance of a human being. And so with that, the options are really limitless. But one of the things that can absolutely be done with these things is also healing. And it's something that I don't think a lot of people talk about approach, but... It's really wonderful for distance healing as well, to be able to have a small effigy of a person and do prayer over them. And I actually will use pins in all sorts of works with effigies. And a lot of people just assume that like, if we're piercing something with a pin, that it's intended to cause harm, which yes, visually that makes sense. But like, that's not what inserting objects into figures has always meant or always is for. I mean, if you look at Nkisi figures, they're pounded full of nails and it's not it's not being used to harm like that's not a stand-in for a person that we're trying to harm that's not what that's about the way that i tend to use pins and needles in a lot of effigy work is to affix of like a, a focus or a focal point or if i'm building up power building up energy and then driving that with a pin into a specific part of the body so for healing i could do that and kind of bring a healing energy and affix it and and, and pin it to that part in the body to be able to offer healing to that individual beyond that let's say that like what we're trying to do is you know perhaps incept something into someone's mind for instance you could also do an effigy and actually pin to like the head uh, where you're trying to insert like an idea or a conception whether it's for good or ill that's entirely up to the operator but those are things that you could do effigies as well obviously i would say that probably the most common thing that people think of with them beyond being used to cause harm to a person so they're used in love spells too where you can take two effigies that represent two different people bind them together you know and and do that as a part of a working so that's an approach as well but we can also use the crafting of effigies to create essentially spirit dolls, which are meant to be inhabited by spirits or that we create a constructed spirit that inhabits that doll. And part of the constructed spirit contract could essentially be that your work will continue as long as this doll stays intact. And then part of the way that you break that contract or uh, are able to dispel or dismiss that spirit that you've um constructed is by the destruction of the doll itself or whether it's a constructed spirit or not it could be a spirit that you're working with on contract and part of the agreement there is that if the doll if you break the doll intentionally that then that's you're canceling out the contract and and that's a part of the agreement that's made before you even do the work with the spirit but so they can be used as spirit houses they can be used as focus uh, you know uh, foci for our spiritual work and and to call a spirit through and maybe a little bit more of a, a conduit or just an icon of a spirit as well. And then, you know, like I said, essentially like a spirit house or a fetish object where you could also put like a guardian spirit in that and keep it at your doorways or other parts of the home. Those are some of the things that could be done. Really, you could, I mean, it's really as far as your imagination wants to take you, though. I think that just limiting the making of effigy or dolls to thinking of like destructive or harmful magic is really short-sighted there's so many wonderful things that we can do with them and that's a big part of what i, I discuss when i'm talking about it the approach towards whether this represents a person or whether it represents a spirit or whether it represents like a deity what is this here for and how are we using it and then because one of the biggest questions that i usually get is like well what do i do with it when i'm done uh, you know what do you do with it when <laughs> 
Well, especially people will ask if it's like meant to represent a person. So let's say that I have this spirit, this effigy that's meant to represent a person. I'm doing healing on it. Like, I don't know that I necessarily just want to like have a stockpile of a bunch of these effigies sitting around after the work is done. You know, magic usually functions and spirit usually functions in the way that we contract it and the way that we program it. So if I say, once I utter these words upon, you know, your form, the connection between you and John Smith will be severed. You know, and this is also something that's that's programmed into it at the time that you are baptizing it or you're aligning it to the spirit of the individual it's supposed to represent. So you you know you would call that into it, and there's a lot of different ways of doing this, and I'm not going to get into it too much through this. But again, I teach a class on this. But but there are a lot of different ways that you can inspirit the actual thing or tie it to a living person. But a part of that is that we make the agreement for how we're going to undo it. And in some cases, one of the things that I have people do is wrap a string maybe around the feet of it, and you tie that off, and you say like that is so long as this string is tied here, you will be linked to the spirit of this person and to their health. And then once I cut this string, that bond will be severed and you will return to being wax or clay or dirt or whatever it is. And so it's a part of how we program it from the beginning that we know then how we're going to take it apart and and sever those connections at the end. Okay, that's amazing. Shifting gears a little bit. You've you've talked a lot about the, the sort of central place that animism holds in your practice. And I'm curious, because a lot of people I talk to talk about animism, but what is that experience, what is that like for you? Is it is it really just a question of how you treat the things around you, or does it feel like a kind of communicatory mode? So I think that it is informed by both of those things, and, and, and we can engage with it in both of those ways. By treating things as though they're alive, they tend to behave a little bit more as though they are. And I feel like I guess one of the best ways that I can break it down is I feel like consciousness pervades most things and and so does spirit or virtues or just the nature of those things has its own power, its own spirit. And so through like spiritual journeying or other types of works, I do think that you could interact with the consciousness of just about anything, whether it's, you know, a flower that you have felt drawn towards or a rock that you're holding or the spirit of a stream or a forest that you're in or nearby, or whether it's, you know, that you want to interact with the conception and the spirit that overrules the number two, right? Um, I think that that's all equally valid. And I think that certain things are going to have more complex consciousness than others and be more easily able to be worked with than others. it's, it's not that I... So it's not that I feel like everything has a fully formed consciousness in the same way that we might view our own, right? But I find that spiritual beings or spiritual energy or the energy of things will respond to being interfaced with as though it, it does have a personality and a consciousness. And, and so that most things that if treated as a spirit will respond as such. I guess that's a part of how I kind of view the animism aspect of it. I don't know if I'm doing the best job of explaining it, but there there's an element of that. So uh, having conscious communication with things is a part of that. And also recognizing that particularly all natural things have their own spiritual signature, their own virtue, their own spirit that informs the magic that we're doing by what it's bringing of itself to the work that we're doing. And so mm-hmm. like we talking about this sort of like the spirit journey that you would do to access and and really speak with the spirit of something. Are we talking about going into some kind of trance state? Are we talking about sort of going up to like, I don't know, a daffodil and, and <laughs> kind of like holding part of the daffodil and sort of trying to really connect with the daffodil? Are we talking about something that would be aided with 
the use of you know henbane or 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 psychocybin or something like that like i don't think that like the use of entheogens is entirely necessary especially for that type of work i not that i'm like opposed to it but i think that it can very easily become too much of a crutch for people especially if you're using it for doing that kind of work because i think that's something that's about developing so it is a form of essentially uh you know what what other folks might call like astral travel or shamanic journeying or hedge crossing that type of a thing where it's going forth in spirit to then interact with the spirit of the thing and call it forth as it is so that's one way of doing it that i find to be pretty effective Uh, you could also just literally hold the object and try to commune with it in a waking sense and if you are particularly gifted at like mediumship or being able to sense different kind of changes and shifts in spirit or <clears throat> excuse me or energy that's also something that you could very much do in a waking sense too where you don't necessarily need to go on to any type of journey but i think that sometimes when we are able to step into the other world and do some form of journey work we give the possibility for that spirit to present itself in a little bit more of an anthropomorphized form so that we can interact with it on maybe a deeper level as opposed to just being in our waking somewhat waking consciousness and trying to tap into the force of that being i think both things can work and actually it's not a bad idea to try and utilize both to get a greater sense of the thing so those are some of the ways that i feel like for me at least historically i've been successful at doing it there are certainly just like knowing the nature of a thing too right like the a coyote tooth has its own nature right it's the tooth of a coyote its job is to bite and grab onto things and it has a predatory nature to it it also has a bit of a trickster nature to it just given to like the mythological and spiritual conceptions of coyotes but also their actual behavior like coyotes will do things like trick you know a female coyote will trick a male dog into you know walking away from people and finding itself alone and then all of a sudden it's surrounded by a pack of coyotes that are attacking it you know so like there are there's a certain nature to these things and in that that piece of the whole carries an element of that nature which then if it were incorporated into a talisman or fetish carries that medicine if you will or that nature and that force to lend itself to the greater whole especially if we're able to essentially align ourselves with it to speak to it to conjure it forth and to call it to be present in a certain way as a part of the whole whether we're making like you know a fetish or a talisman or whatever with it so there's there's a lot of different approaches towards it some of it is just spoken conjuration you know some of it is journey work some of it is just you know using our our senses to align with things and and, and get a sense of of the nature of them uh, and different people will be skilled in different ways you know there's not just one way of doing it these are just the ways that i found to be effective for me yeah well that's really lovely and i think we're, we're coming up on time so i just want to say thank you but also before you go is there any sort of last little bit of of wisdom or just advice you want to leave folks with on on our way out the door sure uh let's see (laughs) i would say just be curious really try to listen to a lot of people that have been doing this stuff for a while always be curious to learn more and don't be afraid to ask questions it's better to you know get over your fear of asking a question and feeling like you're silly for asking that question than to go your life not asking questions and staying ignorant to things i think that that's one of the greatest lessons and no matter how old you get there's always things to keep learning and to keep being curious about and to keep exploring i think it's good to keep that bit of childlike wonder in our magic and really try and find the best ways that like the things that we love the things that we find joy in can be integrated into the way that we express our magic and create our magic in this world if you can do that i think that that's really the true heart of what magic is and should be in our lives is that nexus between ourselves expressing ourselves upon the creation of the divine as a song back to the creator 
That's really wonderful. Matthew Venus, thank you so much. If people want to check you out, they should go to your website, they should go to your Instagram, where should they go? Yeah, so my website is spiritusarcanum.com. That's a great place to, to check me out. Also, Instagram is really wonderful because it's good for people to be able to interact with me on that level, and I usually have updates there about upcoming classes and things like that. So it's just spiritus, it's S-P-I-R-I-T-U-S underscore arcanum, A-R-C-A-N-U-M. That is the Instagram. And then just uh, the, for online, it's just spiritusarcanum, no underscore, dot com. Amazing. And I'll have links to both of those in the show notes. Thank you so much. This has been a joy. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much to Matthew Venus for his wonderful, wonderful chat, really taking the time. You should definitely check him out at Spiritus Arcanum, which I'll have a link to in the show notes. And also check out the Salem Summer Symposium, including a lot of classes from people who, once again, have been on this show, who I'd like to get on this show if they haven't been on it already or get them back. Um, actually, special shout out to the class we done by Peter Von Lakeham because I actually, that, that using tarot cards for saints thing that I mentioned in the interview is something that I, I cribbed from him. So thank you there. Uh, and yeah, definitely check out that. And of course, if you want to support Witch Hassle, which I, I would never tell you not to do, uh, check us out on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash witch hassle. If you have a question for the research department, you can submit them uh via the patreon you can do it on twitter at witch hassle or at instagram at witch hassle or you can just like email me um i have like a form up on my website but if you just want to like email my actual email address that's fine too it's a uh, cooper.wilhelm at gmail.com uh thank you so much for taking the time to give us a listen our theme music was performed by sebastian baverstam and recorded by edward lee this has been witch hassle good luck with the work ahead